welcome to Urban Forum Northwest with your host, Eddie Rye. Uh, we have a number of people we're going to talk with today, and education has been on the front burner for some time now, especially given the COVID-19 and then uh, the subsequent variants that came about, this uh, causing some schools to close down or uh, have remote learning. And we do have on, uh, as a guest uh, today, uh, Steve Smith, Executive Director of the Black Education Strategy Roundtable, and uh, he's probably knows more about what's going on in education on this side of the mountains than anybody else that I know. So Steve, welcome to Urban Forum Northwest. And why don't you share with our listeners a little bit, first of all, about yourself, and also take a couple of minutes to talk about the Black Education Strategy Roundtable and why and how it came about. Thank you, Eddie. It's good to uh, be talking with you once again. And uh, hello, folks. Um, I'm Steve Smith. I'm the Executive Director for the Black Education Strategy Roundtable. Um, I have been involved in education in Washington State for, I don't want to say how many years now, but it's uh, well over 30. I'm working in higher education and been doing advocacy work now for K-12 um, systems and the whole, whole spectrum of, of um, education. So the Black Education Strategy Roundtable, uh, we advocate for systemic changes that improve outcomes for Black students. So if they graduate high school, we're prepared to succeed at post-secondary level and are contributing members and leaders in our state and country. And so we believe that systemic changes, that's the way that we achieve better outcomes for Black students. And this changes will also benefit all students. So we work hard because uh, there are systemic things that are going on. You know, do we have enough teachers, teachers of color in the classroom? Do we, um, what's the qualifications? Um, how are parents being engaged and, and, and treated within those walls of the school buildings? Um, there's a variety of things that happen. And then, of course, there are a lot of decisions that are made at the state level. And so we're working with OSPI, um, the State Board of Education, um, on these components and trying to find strategies and systems that will benefit Black students uh, and all students in our public education system. Now, are you, does uh, a Black Education Strategy Roundtable, are you looking at a specific school district? on the west side of the mountains and statewide. As I recall back several years ago, there was a statewide conference, I believe. Yeah, so um, our, our, our efforts are, are statewide um, and we, uh, we partner with a variety of folks uh, from, from uh, like the Roadmap Project uh, in South King County, um, work with them and um, other groups. And so, but policy levels that get set by the legislature and by um, different state agencies, uh, we work closely with them to, to uh, uh, improve this. One of the cool things that has happened out of um, out of the hardships of COVID um, is that advocates for education, um, we all got together um, really when it was first started when OSPI was getting ready to um, convene folks to figure out how do we reopen schools uh, after they had closed. <clears throat> and there was some work going on and there was a lack of participation of folks of color in this work that was convened by OSPI. And there were some partners that said, hey, how come we don't have more diversity within this framework? And some of us were invited to participate in that work. But what happened was that um, several advocacy organizations include Stand for Children, uh, the League of Education Voters, um, Washington STEM, um, we came together and <clears throat> said, how do we work this so that more voices of folks of color are brought to this table uh, in this work? And we decided we've done different coalitions as, as uh, on projects, but we said we need to come together around this. And what was different in this whole setting was that 
these coalition of organizations, we agreed that we were going to center our work on Black students. This was not going to be about um, um, BIPOC students, it was going to be about Black students, because that is the real core. If we can solve problems for Black students, we can solve problems for all students. Um, the, the, the systems and the embedded racism and the, um, the exclusion from of Black students in our system have just been extensive. extensive. So, this is at work. And so we call this group now, we are the Black Joy Consortium, um, reimagining our schools. And we've had some uh, um, some early success. We were actually, Rufus testifying uh, to the House um, Education Committee um, recently on some proposed changes by um, the OSPI and high school graduation requirements that in scope, there are some good parts about this, but also in, um, uh, in, in, in too many ways, there were too many holes in the program that they were trying to launch. There was not enough infrastructure to support really the kind of uh, advising that was needed to change grad graduation requirements. And so um, they've put that on hold and we're really pleased that that um, has occurred because we wanna do things to improve education, but we gotta do them smart and we gotta do them in the right sequence. Now, what role are you guys playing in, uh, you know, we've had two uh, tumultuous years with uh, the COVID-19 and Omicron variant. And then there was an issue with uh, students under 12 not being able to be vaccinated. And what kind of impact does that have on the student group you're serving and the districts you're working with? Well, early on in the pandemic, uh, we were trying to put out information um, on resources for Black parents um, and what to do with uh, and how they could support their children when they were at home. Because um, that's a huge shift, a huge, huge shift. And one of the things that we saw was that um, there were a lot of lists that were coming out with links to, you know, here's a place you can go for this resources and here's a place that you can go for another resource. And things that we heard from some parents were, they were so busy um, that these long lists of resources was just overwhelming. They didn't have a, They didn't have time to go through sorting that. So we went through and sort of, really combed out some spaces and sort of said, hey, parents, if you got a kid this age, here's a couple within a couple clicks, here's some information you can find to support your, your, your child uh, in reading and, and math at this level. And uh, so we, we provided a few of those cues. But um, <clears throat> it is, it's, it's a hard task. Um, and actually right now, Eddie, we are very concerned um, about what's happening on education um, today. You know, there was really, there's a lot of concern about the learning loss that students may have experienced while um, in doing remote learning. And we know that we've lost a lot of students. We haven't even talked hardly at all about those students that just disappeared, that had no contact with us over the, the course of the pandemic. But now that they're back in school, they were sort of like, oh good, we're back in school. And so now everything is going well for students, but schools are having teaching shortages, staffing shortages, um, you have, um, some supply chain shortages, so just getting meals into schools might be a problem. You've got um, uh, teachers who are out sick and you don't have enough substitutes. And so in some cases, they're having just to find any teacher do, teaching any subject to come and just be present with a group of students in the class um, so that you can have the, the, the classroom is covered. But there's no education. There's no learning that's really going on. And principals are being stretched, um, trying to daily figure out who's available in their building to teach, um, what are the safety protocols that are in place, um, and contact tracing uh, to sort of see if there's been contacts here, how we followed up. And so these are things that principals are spilling their whole day on, and uh, they're not really having a chance to say what's going on learning-wise. How are we helping our teachers 
to uh, be successful in their instruction process? And even how do we help recover the loss of learning that students had? There's plenty of money from the feds that are sitting here for the state. We got uh, $1.8 billion from the feds, but uh, we don't know how that money is gonna be spent. Um, and even if there were great programs in place, are there the personnel? So uh, to actually uh, implement the program. So there's a lot of work to be done and we're gonna keep working on this one. And uh, it's, it's, it's gonna be a haul. Uh, Steve, how, how can people uh, get involved with your organization and how can they get information and how can they support you? Now, are you a 501c3? Yes. So uh, any kind of contributions made are tax deductible? Yeah, you can go to our website. That's www.besrwa.org. So that's besrwa.org. And you can find information about um, um, donations. And actually, this coming Saturday, uh, February 5th, we'll be having a virtual quarterly meeting. Um, and you'll be able to log into that. That'll be from 1030 until 1230. Um, Pre-registration -reg -reg is requested. And so you can go to our website to see that. And we'll be looking at this issue around how our students doing today. We'll be looking at some of our data that we've collected and heard from folks about what's happening. We'll talk about that, hear what people are saying. And then we're gonna come up with action plans. I don't know what those action plans are gonna be, um, but we will collectively come and have conversation and figure out what are some ways that people can impact their schools and their communities um, as we're going through this and try to help the schools. I mean, we wanna be supportive of the schools and do what we can uh, to help them because they are, um, they've got some tough situations in front of them. And so we want to be a real supportive uh, component of that work to help improve education for our black students. And um, you said you have a quarterly meeting coming up? Yes, this Saturday. Okay, Saturday at 1230, 1030 to 1230 online. 10, right after the right after Tacoma Pierce County Black Collective. Right after the Tacoma Black Collective. Yes, we, so isn't amazing how that scheduling works out so well. Yeah, I told you it was right on time because uh, maybe uh, you'll probably end up with all the members of the education committee uh, online with you on Saturday during that hour. Yeah, yeah. And this is really a good time for folks to come in. And if you have concerns or you know what's going well, this is what um, this information would really love to hear. hear. Um, especially if you know something that's going well, if there's teachers or a school building that are making some good progress with uh, um, teaching of Black students. Uh, please let us know about that because we need to know that information so we can get it out to others. And uh, once again, Steve, why don't you uh, share with our listening audience uh, that information about how they can access uh, further information about uh, Black Education Strategy Roundtable. Yeah, you can go to our webpage. Uh, again, that's uh, www.besrwa.org. Um, or you can email me, Steve, at besrwa.org um, and happy to help connect you with uh, information and we'd love to be in contact with you. Now, who are some of the people, and we know Steve is the executive director, who are some of the people that you're working with to make this, uh, this whole venture possible? Um, BSR is, um, we're dedicated to some real pioneers and, and, and stalwarts in education work. Um, my, our board chair, Lyle Quasim, our treasurer, Kevin Washington and Ned Anderson, who works for the UW Tacoma Bothell, um, are some of the folks that have jumped in from the start over 12 years ago, 13 years ago, mm. working with the Commission on African American Affairs to figure out the status of Black students. And they have continued that work um, and they're making that difference here. Uh, Dr. James Smith, 
I can't remember, I can't uh, uh, forget to say um, great words about Dr. Jim uh, and the tons of things that he's doing for education uh, for folks uh, in, our, in our area. Now, is there anything that people need to do to support BSR during this current legislative session? Because everything is remote, and but people can still testify. Uh, there are any kind of uh, legislation or budget requests that you might have that uh, people listening and other supporters of quality education for black students in Washington State can support? Well, you know, um, I'll, I'll highlight one thing is um, around uh, charter schools. Um, we are, there's some work going on with charter schools to um, improve their funding. There's some inequities in the funding systems that have been set up by the state. And so we're trying to get equitable funding. Uh, we're trying to get the extension of their authorization when you happen some more. Um, yeah. Okay, good. The part with the charter schools is that um, they are serving black students really well in several of the charter schools. And so we want to get them together. And so okay. that's a place. Okay, well, we've been, I want you to say hello to uh, the education chair for the house, uh, Sharon Tomiko Santos, uh, is uh, waiting to, be, to join us. She's on right now. Representative Santos? Yes, sir. How are you? Happy, okay. happy uh, African American Month. Heritage Month. <laughs> yes, indeed. Black History Month. Anyway, we have uh, Steve Smith, uh, uh, Executive Director of the Black Education Strategy Roundtable. So I, I thought see. it'd be very appropriate for the chair to say hello and Steve to say hello to you. Yes. Good to Perfect see you, Steve. Santos. Good seeing you. And uh, thank you for all the work that you're doing. And uh, you guys have a heavy agenda um, and you keep those committee meetings flying and uh, uh, working well. And we appreciate all the hard work that you do. Well, thank you so much. Okay. I really appreciate it. Good to see okay. you. Okay, see Steve. You. Thanks for being with us today. So all right, Representative Santos, you have quite a few uh uh, priorities going right now, and you're our our most popular legislator. Uh, what Is that are in your, the Rye household? That's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's in your whole district, which I'll be <laughs> departing uh, by the end of the week, unfortunately. But I'll be so with sad. Senator. I'll be with Senator Bob. Okay. Uh, but I won't be too far away from you as well. So why don't you share with our listeners? Because you know, the, once again, uh, you guys are operating remotely. Uh, you're not down in Olympia, but people are able to still call and give testimony and vote on legislation. Absolutely. So why don't you just uh, provide an overview for the listeners on how things are going and then talk about your legislative priorities? Sure. Uh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, I do want to begin by noting that this is the second year of the biennium. Um, the state does its work in two-year cycles, and so this is the second year of uh, the two-year cycle. And uh, as such, its importance is uh, uh, enhanced by the fact that the second year is always a 60-day or short session. So in the first year of the cycle, we meet for 105 days. In the second year of the cycle, we meet for 60 days, which means that the pace is nonstop. Um, we typically um, only focus in on what they refer to as sort of the adjustments in caseload uh, adjustments in case there are uh, either more costs or more money or less money. Uh, that is really the purpose of having the second year. Those old timers in the audience will remember uh, we only added the second year of the biennium um, I think in the 1970s is when we added the second year. So it used to be we only met every other year. Um, 
So for uh, uh, the, the legislative session overall, as you noted, we are still meeting remotely. We had wanted to come down in what we called hybrid, so partial in person. And for that, we had made, uh, well, we, um, our floor leader and our caucus whip uh, created this very elaborate plan for us to be in cohort so that we could go down and be safe. Uh, everyone had to either um, show uh, a negative COVID test or that they've been vaccinated and boosted. Um, obviously, with the rise of Omicron um, at the very last minute, uh, the legislature had to pivot again uh, so that the only the essential members, meaning uh, the floor leader, uh, the speaker, um, the uh, budget uh, drafters are actually in Olympia right now. They're evaluating uh, the situation in Thurston County, which is uh, worse than it is here in King County, um, every two weeks to see when it might be safe to go down. Having said that, um, so we are continuing with our remote um, public hearings in our committees. Uh, we are also doing our floor action remotely. And so last year um, uh, is just sort of carrying into this year. Um, and uh, uh, you asked about the priorities that I might have. Um, I'm going to start with my priorities as the chair of education, because that's where I have to concentrate all of my efforts um, as a member of the broader caucus leadership. And so for me, what I really care about is making sure that our students are safe. And so what that means this year is um, focusing in on mental health, mental health, mental health, mental health. Uh, supports for our students. The number of students who have experienced suicidal ideation and who have actually completed that ideation is astronomical all across the uh, country, but certainly also in our state. Um, so we are focusing on providing mental health supports, recognizing that mental health is an issue and that some of our students are uh, capable of saying, look, I need a time out. Um, uh, making sure that we uh, help parents understand that easy access to, th to things like prescription drugs um, is probably something that needs to be rethought um, while our students are experiencing so much trauma. Um, and it's spilling over into our staff as well. The second issue that I have is, and maybe some of the uh, listening members of your audience who are parents of students in our public schools, um, have already uh, know what I, I'm talking about when I say um, the staffing shortages in our schools is a crisis. Um, right now, we heard that the two sectors of the economy that are um, the hardest hit are healthcare and education. We don't have enough educators. So we're um, trying to make sure that we're getting more nurses, more uh, school counselors, as well as teachers into the building. And then finally, our school districts are also suffering because we have a very old fashioned way of funding our schools. It's based on seat time and uh, enrollment. And right now, many schools uh, are experiencing uh, huge enrollment declines as parents are making the choice to either not enroll their um, uh, youngest kids in kindergarten, in other words, delaying kindergarten entry, um, or 
the uh, parents are making the decision to move their children to an online school. My priorities, though, as a 37th district uh, representative are really focusing in on um, the work uh, that I've been privileged to do with many of our community-based organizations. Uh, as you know, uh, Eddie, uh, making uh, opportunities for access to uh, education and economic um, uh, success has been a very important um, uh, initiative uh, for all sectors in the 37th district, but particularly those who have experienced the greatest harm as a result of uh, uh, discrimination, both contemporary as well as historical. So I'm very proud uh, to announce, and I think maybe you uh, have already shared this with your audience, um, that I've asked for a million dollars in the state operating budget uh, to support stipends for those um, individuals who will be participants in the MLK Gandhi Empowerment Initiative. So um, I'm uh, very pleased. I've already submitted that. We still need to make sure it stays. Well, first that it gets funded in the House budget. Just because I've made the request doesn't mean that it's getting in there. So I could really use the help of uh, folks who are listening in uh, supporting that. Uh, in addition, um, I will make a note that um, there are two um, uh, CPDAs in the state. One is the Central District uh, Community Preservation and Development Authority, um, uh, the authority to which we transferred the stewardship of the old SVI, the new McKinney Center for Community uh, and Economic Development. Um, unfortunately, we are still working with some uh, challenges within state government, not with the authority, around how to make sure that they can move forward with the money they've been allocated to um, uh, allow uh, for uh, tenants to move in. So uh, I am having to, we had hoped that they would be further along. Unfortunately, again, because of the state um, uh, putting up obstacles, uh, we uh, need to ask for more funding for um, the Central District CPDA. And uh, so I've asked for uh, an additional million dollars there as well. Um, the... Uh, uh, I guess the the only other thing that I would uh, really uh, bring to your attention is that we're doing a great deal of work as a whole in the legislature to infuse our um, our systems and our agencies with a better understanding of how do they work to be more inclusive of uh, all of our communities in uh, both funding opportunities, but also in the way of making sure that uh, often marginalized and disenfranchised communities' perspectives are taken into consideration when our committees uh, and our agencies adopt policies and procedures. And with that, um, perhaps you have some questions you'd like to pose. Well, first of all, I didn't want to say anything publicly about the but the appropriations request for Oops. MLK Gandhi. Oops. I wanted that's why I wanted to have you on the air uh. so you could make that since you're the sponsor of that of that uh, appropriation request. However, I did send out uh, to all the uh, MLK Gandhi advisory advisory board members and board members yesterday 
uh, some marching orders that I got. So uh, they should be making calls real soon. And the folks are very enthused and excited about the possibilities of what this would mean. Because, you know, we've been talking to the round table. We've been talking to uh, Dow Constantine. We haven't yet got a chance to really get into Bruce, uh, Mayor Bruce Harrell's ear yet. But uh, we think this will be the foundation that's needed because then once again, we have to go back now to uh, Congressman Bobby Scott. Uh, if he hears this, he will be elated. And I think it will be a lot easier for us to attract the federal dollars that we need to ensure that we have a successful program in providing digital technology to members of the community who have been traditionally left out. And uh, as you well know, those positions pay handsomely. As a matter yes, of fact, they do. You, you could almost buy a house in the CD again. So, yep. yeah, you so that's, ex yeah, that's, so that's exactly where we are. So, but uh, we really appreciate uh, all the work you've done. You were the sole sponsor for the Central District Community Preservation and Development Authority, which is now the McKinney Center for Community and Economic Development. So uh, it's very fitting to have you on uh, for the first day of Black History Month because you've been a significant contributor uh, to the Black community and also to Black history. As a matter of fact, people don't know, but you had, where'd you have your first job? I had my first job at the Central Area Motivation Program Camp. <laughs> How old were you then? Uh, I, I was 13. I was there under the um, summer, um, I forgot, for teenagers. Summer youth. Summer youth employment, exactly. Yeah, so, that was a long time ago. Got to say that. But um, uh, I'm glad you raised it because it's the lessons from that uh, program, that manpower program that came from the feds, that came down through Comprehensive Employment and Training uh, Act uh, that funded the uh, uh, summer youth employment. Those were the lessons that helped impress upon me that um, one of the jobs of government, of being in the public service, is to help lift up others so that they can be successful um, in uh, not only supporting themselves, but also advocating for themselves and, um, and then uh, helping to build community. And um, yeah. And we got, uh, I guess, the ballot issue uh, of levies is coming up. Um, do you think that the state need to be doing more or should we be uh, pushing the levy concept? Well, I will say uh, the answer is both. Mm, okay. uh, the, the state does need to be doing more, but um, the, the reason for levies is because um, the state is supposed to set the floor or the minimum um, uh, and um, every you know, region of the state is a little bit different. And so to the extent that a local community may want to emphasize um, something, uh, like many of our Eastern Washington school districts really like to focus on, for example, ag edu education or natural resource education. Not that we couldn't have it in uh, the urban areas, but there's a natural interest there. And so maybe they would want through their local levies to uh, create uh, an educational program that focuses on um, the agricultural industries uh, or those kinds of pathways or science um, that is uh, based in um, uh, natural resources. Uh, whereas we may want to focus more on water and oceans um, or uh, the richness of our very, very diverse communities. So there is a place for levies, uh, but certainly the state should be doing more as well. 
Representative Santos, I certainly do want to thank you for your time and your work today, specifically on behalf of the Black community. We certainly do appreciate the job you're doing and uh, look forward to seeing you in person real soon when they start allowing people to come back together again. <laughs> okay, let's hope so. Thank All right, you so then. much. I appreciate okay, thank it. You. All Bye -bye. right, I appreciate you as well. Okay, Eric, we will take a break. Uh, before we take the break, and we, I guess we're taking a break. I was going to say, uh, uh, have Quintara Taylor say hello to Sharon Tomiko, but let's take the break and come right back with, with uh, Dr. Quintara Taylor from BlackPass.org. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion, and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the Port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at portseattle.org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.seataxhops.com. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill in the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, Link Light Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Light Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. No other station delivers this much variety. Alternative Talk 1150. Eddie Rye back at uh, Urban Forum Northwest. Uh, happy Black History Month. And to that end, we have uh, Dr. Quintar Taylor, who uh, is the founder of uh, BlackPass.org. And uh, uh, Dr. Taylor, we'd like to have you just talk about Black History Month and exactly what uh, uh, BlackPass.org is going to be doing. Well, well, first of all, Eddie, thank you for having me on your program. And yeah, let me let me give you a little bit of background about myself and share with the listeners. Um, I teach at, or I taught African-American history. I retired from the University of Washington in 2018. I, I held the, the bullet chair, uh, the Scott and Dorothy bullet chair, which is the oldest endowed chair at the university. And I held it from uh, 1999 to 2018. And while I was there, uh, I focused on not just African-American history, but history of African-Americans in the Pacific Northwest. And as, as you know, Eddie, I, I wrote a book, didn't write the book, but I wrote a book on the history of African-Americans in Seattle. And I wrote a more general book on the history of African-Americans in the West. And that's, that's been my focus. I, 
you know, I've taught African-American history, well, let's say going back to 1971. This shows you how old I am. <laughs> 1971. I started teaching at Washington State University in Pullman, and I've been teaching pretty much uh, ever, ever since then. And in 2007, um, I was, uh, we decided to launch. I shouldn't say I, we, because there were a number of people who helped me with this project. We decided to launch uh, BlackPass.org. Uh, the story, and I think you may have heard it before, but it might be good to share with your listeners. Uh, the story came about because about three years earlier, uh, with the assistance of, uh, of my uh, TA at that time, uh, we put together a small, what we thought was a small website project that involved my faculty website. There were, as I was teaching African-American history, there were a lot of students who asked questions about the background of Malcolm X or Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks. And my teaching assistant uh, decided that it would be best if we put some of that background information in vignettes, what he called vignettes, that went on uh, my faculty website. And so we did that. Uh, my teaching assistant, by the way, was George Hamlin, who was actually older than I. He was a lawyer, but he came back to, to the University of Washington to, to complete a Ph.D. At any rate. Uh, George Hamlin said, you know, you're taking up too much time explaining the background of some of these folks. Why don't you put that information on uh, your website, your faculty website? And I followed his advice. I reluctantly followed his advice. And we did put it on the faculty website. And I actually forgot about it for about a year. And then around 2015, I got an email from a young lady. And the way she wrote, the style of her writing, suggested that she was probably in high school. And she said, uh, I've been looking at your website, and I have these questions, these 10 questions about African-American history that I'd like to ask you. And I wrote her back, and I emailed her back, and I said, well, I'm not going to answer 10 questions over the email. Why don't you come in during my office hour, and we can talk about it. I did not hear from her for about 24 hours, a 24-hour period, and then she wrote back and she said, I can't come in and talk to you during your office hour because I live in New Zealand. And at that point, I realized that we had not gated black, uh, we had not gated the faculty website. The information was literally going around the world. I, I, you know, people would say, well, there's a World Wide Web, but I sort of dismissed that idea as hyperbole. But in fact, the information was going around the world. It went all the way to New Zealand. And, um, and so I responded to her questions via email. And then about a month later, I got an email from someone who purported to be from the State Department. And to make a long story short, I don't want to bore your, your listeners, even as I tell this story, um, that person wanted me to travel to Russia to talk about African-American history based upon the information from the faculty website. And in fact, I did. I took a chance, went to Russia uh, on a visit sponsored by the U.S. State Department. I stayed there for half a month, toured Siberia, places that most Russians had never gone to. And I was fascinated by the fact that Russians were interested in African-American history, and particularly African-American history 
in the Pacific Northwest. I, I told a joke in, in one of the presentations. I said, you, you should know, I was talking to the Russian students, that at one time Alaska was owned by Russia, and indeed the, the coast of the Pacific Northwest all the way down to California was claimed by Russia, and the students said, yes, we know, and we want it back. <laughs> and, and I was just fascinated by that. I was fascinated by their interest, the interest of these Russian students in African-American history. And so when I got back to the States, I said, you know, we need to create a dedicated website, a website that focuses on African-American history that's going to be available to everybody. And so we did, and, and it took about two years. But on February 1st, 2007, uh, BlackPass.org was launched on the campus of the University of Washington. And the rest, as they say, is history. Um, we, we never expected what would happen. The website crashed the very first day because there was so much interest uh, in African-American history that, that was coming through this new website. And we started growing, and we thought we'd probably get, if we were lucky, we would get uh, 10,000 visitors in the first year. We got uh, 200,000 in the first year. We got a million in the third year, and we've been growing ever since then. And last year, uh, that is 2021, we got over 6 million visitors from around the world, from almost every country in the world. So BlackPass.org has, has literally taken off. Uh, it's gone far beyond our wildest dreams, but it's, it has served one major purpose, to educate the world about African-American history and the history of black people globally. And we're very, very proud of that. We work on a model well, you, that... <clears throat> I'm well, I wish you would. Uh, I wish you would send uh, Te uh, Senator Ted Cruz the website. <laughs> well, we can, or you can pass it on to him. We don't care. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, you know, I'm here in Pearland, Texas. I'm not even in Seattle at this point. I, I'm in Pearland, and I will be down here for a few months. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to do was to talk about Texas history. There's a lot of Black history in Texas, and that black history, in many instances, contradicts the official version of Texas history. For instance, for instance, uh, most Texans believe that the struggle of, uh, that was manifest by the Alamo, the Battle of the Alamo, uh, that eventually brought about Texas independence, was really about liberty-loving Anglo-Texans who hated the, if you will, the dictatorial regime of the central Mexican government. Well, in fact, it was about slavery. The Mexican government wanted to free all of the slaves. Anglos in Texas wanted to keep slavery. And yes. the paradox of that, that revolution, that so-called revolution, that independence struggle, was that Anglos were fighting for their independence from what they call Mexican slave enslavement so that they could enslave black people. That's that's well, well, uh, Dr. Quintana Taylor, uh, before we have to go, can you please uh, share, and then I want to have you back on later on in the month, too. I want to get some more feedback on your website. Would you please share that website information with us? Right. Thank you. Uh, the website is www.blackpass.org. Uh, you can okay. easily find it or just go to Google, type in blackpass.org, and it will come up. And okay. yes, please, uh, 
Eddie, go to the website. Have your listeners go to the website. We want everybody to know this history. It's it's black history, but we believe that that black history should be learned and appreciated by everybody in the world. Thank My next know. guest is uh, Reverend Dr. Robert L. Jeffrey, the founder of the Black Holidays Task Force, and they're bringing uh, the director of uh, the Black Wall Street Museum. To, uh, they're going to have an event, and it's going to be uh, on Saturday. And this is sponsored by the Black Dollar Days King County Reparations Project. But anyway, thank you, Dr. Taylor. Uh, Reverend Jeffrey, you can say hi, Dr. Quintard Taylor. Hi, Dr. Taylor. Hi, Dr. Hello. Taylor. Hello, Reverend Jeffrey. I know. I look Dr. forward Taylor. to meeting you Good sometime. Work. Thank you. Okay, so anyway, uh, we're going to take a quick break, Doc, and we'll come right back to Reverend Dr. Right. Jeffrey. Okay. Uh, to talk about the Black the Black Wall Street Project, and we'll have. Uh, the director, Dr. Philip Armstrong, with us, but he's entertaining Laura Coates at the yeah. museum in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So yeah. we'll be right back. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion, and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at portseattle.org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.ctacshops.com. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill in the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, Link Light Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Light Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. Find out the latest about your favorite shows on Alternative Talk 1150. Check out 1150kknw.com. Okay, Eddie Rye back at Urban Forum Northwest with Reverend Dr. Robert L. Jeffrey, Sr., founder, uh, pastor, senior pastor of New Hope Missionary Baptist Church, founder of uh, Black Dollar Days Task Force, Clean Greens Farm and Market, and now uh, the King County uh, Black Repar- uh, the King County Reparations Project that will feature the, the director of the Tulsa Museum, Dr. Phil uh, Armstrong. Bill Armstrong, man, sitting here looking at his name. But anyway, Doctor, why don't you just uh, share with our listeners exactly what's going to be going on on Saturday for this event? Okay, well, uh, Doctor Armstrong is going to be here. Uh, as uh, you said earlier, uh, we were going to try to get him on this um, this uh, 
interview, but he's, uh, like I said, he's interviewing Laura Coates to, at the museum tonight, and so welcoming and uh, hosting her at the museum. So he's, uh, he's going to be here Saturday. He'll be arriving in Seattle on, on Friday, and um, um, he's going to be giving a presentation about uh, Black Wall Street, about the museum. I think he's going to bring some things with him, uh, some artifacts with him uh, to show things that, um, and, and then he's going to talk about the history uh, of uh, the Black Wall Street uh, uh, um, uh, uh, uprising and uh, the, the, the murderous uh, 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 things that happened to the Black people on Black Wall Street. He'll talk about um, the businesses that existed at that time and uh, so he's going to give us um, a lot of information. I had the privilege to go through the museum in Tulsa myself, Whitfield, and when I was there. And uh, so he's he's anxious to get here. He's anxious to get here. He's, I talked to him this afternoon. He's anxious to be here. And 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 Reverend Jeffrey, you uh, have had some major contributions to the community, and most recently uh, there was a housing development that mm -hmm. uh, they had your name on it. I'd like to have you share with our listeners exactly the project, where it's located, and, and those kind of things. It's the uh, Square Park Plaza project. Um, they were getting ready to sell the project uh, to developers outside the community. Uh, we partnership with uh, Lehigh, uh, Sharon Lee, to, uh, and we negotiated the, to keep the project, keep the Square Park uh, apartments in the community, under community ownership. Uh, Lehigh and 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 the New Hope in New Hope Development uh, Community Development uh, 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 Institute uh, New Hope CDI uh, is partnershiping together with Lehigh to uh, keep the building here. And uh, even though our organization is, is a fledgling organization, we're just getting started. Um, we were able to uh, enter in with Lehigh in those negotiations and to get temporary funding and, and to also save the building from uh, being uh, sold to uh, for-profit developers. And, and uh, that was important. I mean, it's important that we save everything we can save. Now, there was another uh, project that uh, we talked about some time ago, and that was uh, during the urban renewal or the black removal, uh, the yeah. uh, one square block across from New Hope Church yeah. was kind of uh, had Reverend, uh, I don't know what, who the, I think it was Reverend Williams, anyway, his yeah. arm was twisted. And uh, so uh, the property was forced to sell the property for peanuts. Yeah. Uh, is there any pro any possibility of the church well, retaining that property? Well, right now we're, we're um, running the uh, King County uh, uh, Reparations Project, which is uh, a partnership with the, by the NAACP uh by the Japanese First Baptist Church, by First Baptist Church Seattle, by um, Seattle Church Council. Those are the partners in this preparations project. What we're doing now is just getting testimonies from people all over Seattle who have lost property, their grandchildren, their nieces and nephews. Uh, in the three categories we're looking at is racism in a domain, which took our property at New Hope. We're also looking at subprime lending, uh, which is, you know, during the late, early 2000s, people came in with these subprime lending loans. Washington Mutual was one of the prime agents of that. And a lot of people got these loans, fixed up their houses, and then the interest rate starts es escalating and people lost their homes. 
and uh, or they bought homes and the interest rates started ex- escalating and they were underwater. Uh, so the, the subprime lending, as well as uh, the weed and seed, the, uh, the, the situation that weed and seed was the violation of the 14th Amendment, where people could come in and seize your property without you going to court. For example, if somebody was selling drugs out of your house and they could come in and seize your whole house, you got no redress on that. You couldn't go to court and they took all your property and assumed it was a part of the drug. They didn't, you didn't, couldn't go through a legal process to separate out your property from whoever was dealing drugs or, or designate what property you bought with drug money, what property you didn't. Now the women didn't go to jail, but they lost everything because their boyfriends were selling drugs. A lot of old people lost their homes because their grandsons or grandchildren maybe have been accused of selling drugs. And, and this is a, a violation of the 14th Amendment. It's a violation of, 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 of people being, being, property being seized without people having a right to uh, uh, legal, legally redress, address that, that whole seizure. And uh, so we believe that uh, the abatement laws were a violation of the 14th Amendment. And that uh, that's a part of uh, what happened in Seattle to, uh, to deplete and, and to uh, drive out the citizens, African-American citizens from Central Area. Well, Reverend Jeffrey, about 50 years ago, I was chair of the Central Seattle Community Council Federation's Housing Committee. Uh, Dr. Rosalind Woodhouse was a uh, director yeah. of camp. And I was, uh, but anyway, uh, we, we released the first report on redlining. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that uh, that 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 was like uh, uh, eight banks or five banks have made one loan or less. Yeah. Uh, and then what would happen is the city of Seattle would come around the building inspection and say, OK, Miss Jones, your house is uh, out of code and you got 30 days repaired. She has nowhere to go and get yeah. any too, money yeah. to so that she Red loses money. the property. Yeah. So, Red you know, money. so we had yeah, as a matter of fact, this situation went all the way back. President Gerald Ford sent the Secretary of HUD out here to talk to us, but uh, 50 years later, what was uh, uh, on the drawing board was been accomplished by hook and by crook, and uh, urban renewal was just black removal. So, Reverend Jeffrey, I want to thank you once again. Why don't you give yeah. our folks the information about it's a Saturday? It starts at five five thirty. Uh, it's at the Washington Hall. Um, Washington Hall is on Fur, I think. Uh, I'm not sure what the 14th, address. yeah, right off yesterday. 14th, 14th and 4th, yeah. right, ac- right across from the Urban League building. Um, it's going to start at 5. Um, we all have a band there. Um, uh, the Lonnie Williams band will be there. We'll have a DJ. So it's going to be nice. And um, and then um, um, Dr. Phil Armstrong will be speaking. He'll be speaking around 6.30. Okay. 6 to 6.30. Well, Dr. Jeffrey, you keep it up. You're, you're really doing a lot of good things in the community. Very no, proud position to take. Okay. We, we we need people to call too. Call um call uh, uh for I, I don't have that number right now. If they have a testimony they want to give, and and of course redlining would be one of those testimonies. We've had we've got about uh, ten uh, videotape uh, uh, testimonies already, and we're going to okay. our goal is to get sixty to seventy. Okay, well I'll do my part, and thank you very much for your time, Reverend right. Jeffrey. Thank you for what you're doing. Thanks a lot. Here. Thanks a lot, Eddie. Okay. Okay. All right. I want to uh, thank uh, Sound Transit's Labor and uh, Civil Rights Division, Leslie Jones and John T. Robinson. And congratulations, Leslie and Richard Jones. They are African-American Achievement Award winners on February 19th over in Bremerton. 
And I'm going to try to get Deborah Moore Jackson on uh, the next week or so, so we can talk about that. And then P- Patricia Lee from the Port of Seattle uh, will be coming on shortly to talk about the King's Ball. This also will be in Seattle, held, yeah, I think, at the, the Marriott, uh, SeaTac Marriott on February 19th as well. Uh, so uh, there'll be something to do, and you got to make sure you have your vaccination card with you. And you got to make sure that uh, you're masked down unless you're drinking. I also want to thank the Port of Seattle uh, Diversity Contracting Office. And want to thank uh, Alma Harrell and Purchasing, who uh, keeps me updated on what's going on with Blacks and government down there as well. The City of Seattle's Purchasing and Construction Services Office with uh, Liz Alzier. I want to thank Harold Wright. Harold Wright is an author and a contractor. And uh, he has about several books out. And as a matter of fact, next week when I'm on the air, I'll make sure I give you the names of those folks. And uh, I want to thank, uh, the, uh, I forgot to mention John T. Robinson, but also uh, my friend and accounts payable, Rosalind Wilson. I want to thank you very much for your help and your assistance. And uh, I want everybody to really uh, learn something about Black history. This is Black History Month. And what we're seeing what's going across the country right now is totally unacceptable uh, with the resentment of people don't want to hear the truth about uh, about the, the United States of America. Uh, good, bad, or indifferent, it happened. And why should you keep that secret from anyone? And that's why a lot of people come over here get misguided because they don't get a chance to learn the truth about American history. Black history is American history. And I don't care what anybody has to say about it. Uh, critical race theory is just teaching the truth. Well, that's just really too bad. But I would advise everybody to learn as much about everybody's history in this country. We've been here 400 years, Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz, fought in every war, Ted Cruz, and uh, uh, 254 years of slavery. Uh, that's free labor, Ted Cruz. Uh, died in every war, Ted Cruz. Uh, I don't know what your family was doing. So yes, black women are 6% of the population, but they have 254 years of labor they haven't been paid for. Eddie Rye with another edition of Urban Forum Northwest. Talk to you next week.